Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you for each person that showed up. We ask that you guide and lead us as we look at your word and, and see what you would have us learn from this lesson tonight. And we just thank you for each person here in your son's precious name. Amen. Deuteronomy 15, starting at verse 21, because we didn't quite finish this uh, chapter last week. Verse 21, you shall not plant you a grove of any trees near unto the altar of the Lord your God, which you shall make you. Neither shall you set there you up any image which the Lord your God hates. You shall not sacrifice unto the Lord your God any bullock or sheep wherein there is blemish or any evil favoredness, for that is an abomination unto the Lord your God. We're going to stop there because that's a paragraph. And we look at this and we, if you were here last night when our study of Ezekiel, in, in Ezekiel chapter 8, God was talking about the abominations in his temple and outside the idol. And here we see in Deuteronomy, he tells them very specifically not to do what they were doing at the time of Ezekiel. Well, let's look at this one. You shall not plant a grove. 16. Did I say 15? I'm sorry. 16. That's because my notes are wrong. 21. 16, 21. 16, 21. All right. You shall not plant a grove of any tree near the altar of the Lord your God. This is something that we have talked about several times. When we see the word grove, it literally is an Astaroth, which is, an, which is a fertility goddess of that area. Okay, so it's a totem pole. And what they would do is they put the totem of the Astaroth up. Then they would put a ring of trees around the totem. And inside that ring of trees, they would basically have an orgy in their, in their worship as they would sacrifice to the god. And God is saying, I don't want this idol near my altar, which makes total sense. And we talked a lot about that last night. It makes total sense that God does not want an idol being next to his yeah, altar. Okay. And then he says, neither shall you set up any image which the Lord your God hates. So in other words, he's not just limiting it to the Astaroth. He's, he's I mean, no idols next to his altar. And we covered this quite a bit last night, that the jealousy that this would provoke you know, and, and how we would look at it in a very jealous way too if, if there was a, uh, something uh, competing for our love in our own life. And so this is what God says. And then he goes on to say, You shall not sacrifice unto the Lord any bullock or sheep wherein there is a blemish or any evil favoredness. And he's saying, Don't bring him the junk is what he's basically, to put it in blunt, easy terms, he says, don't bring me the junk that you don't want. Okay, so you've got the lamb with the broken leg, so you say, okay, well, this lamb's not really worth anything, I'll give it to God. And uh, people would do that, and people still do that in our day and age. They'll go, uh, they'll go well, God, if I have any money left over, I'll give you the pennies or whatever I have left over. And God's saying, no, I want you to honor me. And in Malachi, he says, you want to offer the, the junk to, to God? Try doing that to your governor and see how pleased he is. We, we look at this and say, God is saying it's an abomination to put up an altar, an a idol near his temple, or to bring the junk of your flock to him 
is an abomination. Before I started working at the prison, we had my wife's income and the little bit I was making here at the church. We made about, oh, let's see, take-home pay was somewhere around $1,100 a month with our house that we're buying, the insurance for our cars, the gas for our car, which I was making five trips a week up here, round trip, food on the table, paying the, paying the utilities and the bills and everything else, and God always brought in whatever it took. And I'm just saying, that's my experience. It's what God has promised. All I say is what God says is what I trust in. And this is why I quote what McGee said, where I and God disagree, God is right. God says he will honor it. And I know it, it makes no sense. I would, I would get a special gift or somebody would give me another job to do with the computer. And it, I'm not saying it was just that amount of money, but God would either make the money stretch or, or he would open a door. I'd go out, to the, out and there'd be a check in the mail. All I know is God says if we honor him, he returns back to us. Now, I'm not using this the way the name and claim it. Give me your $1,000 and I'll give you 10000 No, I'm not going there at all. But God has always met my needs as they have come up. The, the, the one on this is just you, you listen to God. I, I have been tithing all my life, so it's not a big deal to me. And God has always honored my giving to him. And I don't say that with great pride. It's just it is what he said to do, so I have done it. And that's a big part of it, too. I, I'm very careful on what I spend my money on. You quoted some of these verses that are very true. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean on into your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct your paths. Too often, we look at things from a human perspective and say, well, I don't know how it can work. It won't work, so we don't have the faith to walk in it. And this is true, not just a tithing. I'm not just using tithing on this. This is God saying, do this or do that or help this person. Or, you know, and we're going, well, God, I just don't understand. And, then, and we don't step out in faith. And then we marvel when we read the books and the biographies about these people who step out in faith, do these really weird things, and God blesses them for it. In the book, God Smuggler, uh, Brother Andrew's delivering Bibles into Russia, and they decide they're going to swap them out in the middle of the uh, Red Square in, in, in uh, Moscow because that's where God led them to do. We went right out in the open, and they transferred them and, and with no problem. You know, now, is that something everybody should do? No, but if God steps up, this is what we look at. What does God tell us? Are we ready to step out in faith when God gives us a challenge? Too often, the answer in my life and most people's life is, no, we're not ready to step out in faith. But when we start stepping out in faith and we learn to walk that way, it's amazing what God will do to say yes. And I can't, say, I can't promise you what it is. All I can do is tell you that God says to do it and that he will honor those gifts. I do believe that if you refuse to tithe, God's going to take his tithe anyway by the flat tire you didn't expect, your gasoline not going as far. Yeah, usually it takes more than his tithe with all the little things that go wrong. And when you're tithing, all the little things don't go wrong. When you're, making a, when you're given enough that it could actually pay some bills, it's hard to do. And that is what the statistics and studies show. The more people make, the less likely they are to tithe. And I know exactly what it is. If you're making $2,000 a month, that $200 is is your utilities, is your, is a bunch of, you know, pays a lot of stuff. And even though it's still only 10%, seems like so much more. 
you know, I can't, I can't promise you any more than what the Bible says. It, I can tell you what the Bible says, and I can tell you my experience. God has never let me down. Now, I've, I am not sitting saying that he's sat there and just thrown money at me. There's been times where he says, here's a job. You're going to go out and earn this $100, and I've had to go out and do a computer job on the side or do this or do that. And God, but God has opened up the opportunities. Sometimes the money has just come in the mail. God says he's honoring, and, and it doesn't, and believe me, I understand what you're saying. It makes no sense to give away your money and have the, and have the remainder go further than it, than it would without giving. In my case, we have been upping our offerings over the years, so we're not just giving 10% either. Yeah, and I don't tell people how much we're giving because it's nobody's business, and I, don't, and I don't know how much anybody gives in the church. The only person in this church that knows who, how much anybody gives is John because he does the treasury work and deposits it, and I don't ask him, and I don't want to know, and if he tries to tell me, I, wouldn't, I would tell him I don't want to know. So like, all I know is that God honors the tithe. I, I am a full believer, even though it's not really scriptural that I have been able to find, I believe that he takes the tithe one way or another just from what I've seen in people's lives. If they don't make him first, he, he decides to take it from them, and it's usually more than the tithe that he takes. All right, verse 2. If there be found any among you within the, your gates, which the Lord your God gives you, man or woman, which hath wrought wickedness in the sight of the Lord your God in transgressing his covenant, and has gone and served other gods and worshipped them, either the sun, the moon, or any of the host of heaven, which I have not commanded, and it be told you, and you have heard it, and inquired diligently, and behold, it be true, and the thing certain that such an abomination is wrought in Israel, then you shall bring forth that man or that woman which has committed that wicked thing into your gates, even that man or that woman, and shall stone them with the stones till they die. At the mouth of two or three witnesses shall he that is worthy of death be put to death, but at the mouth of one witness he shall not be put to death. The hands of the witnesses shall be first upon him to put him to death, and afterward the hands of all the people, so shall you put evil away from among you. Now we've talked about this very sentence in, in past books, and remember Deuteronomy means the second giving of the law. So everything we're covering in Deuteronomy has already been covered over the last four years as we've worked our way through the other books of the law. But here he says, and you find out about it, it's to be investigated, and if it is true, and he goes with certainty, this is very important that, he's, that he says that we needs to be certain, then that person is to be stoned. And the hands of the, per, the ones who throw those first stones are the witnesses. Why? To be a deterrent against perjury, basically. If you have to throw the first stone, your heart will be more likely to convict you and you're going to have a guilty conscience if nothing else if you give false testimony to, their, uh, to them. Remember when we first started talking about this, it's, they've, the Israelites have wandered in the desert for 40 years. So all these people that are being retopped the law did not hear it in the original giving because it was given to their parents and their grandparents and their grandparents and their parents are dead after 40 years of wandering in, in the wilderness. Moses at this point is re-giving the law to the, to the new generation that is getting ready to go into the promised land. And let's go back to what we did when we first started this many, many months ago. The children of Israel 
are on the west side of Jordan getting ready to cross into the promised land, the point they're at. This basically, and we said this way back in the first part, this whole book is basically one long sermon from Moses saying, you're getting ready to go into the promised land. We're going to rehearse your history. We're going to give you, we're going to re-go over all the laws that I gave your parents that they didn't keep and they didn't obey. And now I'm going to give it to you before you go into the promised land. And then remember that Moses is not going into the promised land. And the reason he's not going into the promised land because he got angry at the people and he was supposed to speak to the rock to bring out water and he struck the rock. And the rock represented Jesus, the, the living water. And Jesus was only struck one time and not twice. And Moses messed up the, the, the picture that God was trying to give. And, him, and God said, because you've done that, you're not going into the promised land. And remember, we kept going in there. Moses never repents of striking the rock. One he blames all the time is, and we'll see this all frequently in Deuteronomy. He always says, because of you, people, I am not going into the promised land. You made me angry. I struck the rock. God got mad at me and said, I'm not going. He never took responsibility for his own sin. I truly believe that if he had repented of his anger, God would have let him in. But God knew that he would not repent of his, his anger. It's understandable that he got mad at the people. It's not a, it's not a surprise. But he let his anger get the best of him and when, at that right. particular and instant. He got angry and he sinned. And he sinned because when he struck the rock, he, he, literally, he said, must I bring forth water out of this rock? And then he struck the rock. So he, not only did he strike the rock, which made the picture of, of Jesus wrong, but he also had put himself in the you know, place of God at this, saying, I'm providing you with this water and not God. And yet God gave him the water. The information then the No. Israel has always been a very stiff-necked people and still are to this day. They have not changed, and that's the whole thing that we see all through the Old Testament. They didn't go into captivity because of how nice and, and obedient they were. They went into captivity for disobeying God and bringing idols in next to the altar that he told them not to do in this, in this chapter directly or the previous chapter directly, don't put idols next to the altar, and yet we see him showing Ezekiel, they put an idols next to the, the altar, and right at the door of the tabernacle, uh, temple, they're worshiping the sun and the moon. No, they, they never got any better. I mean, there were times when they would be slightly better. When David ruled, they were, they were fairly righteous because the king was righteous. Solomon ruled, and while he was righteous, they were righteous. When he went into sin, they went into sin. Josiah was a righteous king. Uh, Hezekiah was a righteous king. Uh, there were a handful of righteous kings, and during those kings' rule, the people were generally righteous. Okay, same thing we see in our, in our own country. If we have good leadership, God blesses the country, and people seem, at least on the outward, to be godly. When there's evil leadership in, the, in there, we see all the evil rising up out of people. Israel was no different, but they had it in spades in many cases. They just, they really were intense. But God says, you investigate this evil, and if it's true, you bring them out to the gate to the judges, and you say, this person has been committing idol worship. And it had to be at the word of two people. And their testimonies had to be the same as much as possible. Not so much the same that people would look at and say they've colluded to, to give their same testimony. And this is something that we, we bring into people when, when 
people will say that the Gospels don't say the same thing. Well, of course they don't say the same thing because if they said exactly the same thing word for word, number one, there wouldn't be any need for four of them. But number two, what would you say if somebody, if, you're, if you were in court as, a, as the juror and you listened to two people give exactly the same testimony point by point with no deviation whatsoever, you're going to say something fishy. Those two have put together, have gotten their heads together and planned what to say. If they come in and they've colluded together to say exactly the same thing that people look at and say, there's something wrong with your testimony. If the Gospels and the rest of everything was word for word, exactly the same, then exact, that would be exactly what the skeptics would say. They concluded, uh, co co con they both got, they colluded together to come up with the, with the same testimony. By giving certain details that are different, but not wrong, it shows that it is a true testimony. The way they've talked about it is if somebody is looking at an accident uh, that happens on an on a intersection and they're, on, they're not going to tell the same story because they're all going to see it slightly different. Uh, and they're going to say, well, I saw two cars. And the other person, well, I saw the third car or I saw the bicycle that, that you didn't see because it got in the way of the car. And, and you put the testimony together and then you start seeing, oh, here's all the facts and now you see what, what happened. And this is something that is very true if you've ever done any kind of trying to fix a conflict. It's pretty amazing how you'll get two people telling you a story about something and the story sounds very different. And I'm not saying they're lying. Usually they're telling the truth as they, as they saw and understood the truth. Now, unfortunately, in the process of telling the truth, they will not tell you anything that makes them look bad, usually. It's always the other person doing the bad stuff, and you kind of have to put both stories together to find out what really happened and try to, try to really solve the conflict. This is the way it is in these, in these stories when we read them. He says the testimony has to be by two, and it has to be reasonably the same, but not exact, because if it was exact, we'd have a problem. And then he says, you, or, or more. You can have more witnesses, but you're not going to have less than two. That is one of the strong things that bring people to, to evidence that the Bible is a true book, is just that. It brings out all the bad about people, doesn't hide, doesn't hide the bad, which is not what you would normally do if you're trying to start a religion or, or write a book about your religion. Who, who got to deliver the testimony that Jesus was raised from the dead were the women. In our day and age, we don't think much of that statement. But in their day, a woman could not give testimony in court if they were the eyewitness. They were property in their day and age. And yet God used women to be the one to bring the news that Jesus was raised from the dead. And again, in our day and age, we don't think, you know, like, well, so what's the big deal? That was a huge deal in that, in that day. Outside of the Christian world, it pretty much exists everywhere still. And this is why I say the amazing thing is we are in the Christian countries of Europe and, and the United States. We are used to this idea of things being good and, and kind and, and all of this. But as we start drifting further and further away from God, we're seeing more and more of the old way of thinking, which is the human way of thinking, being invading. Life is not important. Uh, just kill all the babies you don't want. You know, the old people get useless, kill them. Uh, you, you think your life use, useless, kill yourself. This is not the Christian worldview. Life is precious because we are created in God's image. 
the way of the world, the way of the flesh, the way of the devil is a life and a, and a viewpoint of death. And we're starting to see that creeping back in. In Roman days and Greek days and even before, if you got injured on the battlefield and you could not move around, you were useless to everybody. They would just leave you there. You know, you're worthless. If you can crawl your way home and somebody will take care of you, be our guest, but we're leaving you. All of this comes down to the difference between the way Christianity has influenced the world and the way the world generally operates. You brought it up in the Middle East, in most of Asia, many places in Africa, most of South America are still very much in this backwards way of thinking from the way we think of as the Christian worldview. And the scary thing is, is the further this world, our Christianized world gets from God, the more we're drifting back into this life is not of any value. And we're going to see it get worse before, before Jesus comes. And then it'll really get worse than during the tribulation period. But it is just returning back to what man has already always done. And so we look at this and say, look what God has given us. He's given us so much. Here he gives us a rule of law. You're not going to kill somebody just because one person testifies against it. Can you imagine how that would work? You, know, you offend me, so I give, I give testimony about how bad you offended me and you get killed. You don't deserve it at all necessarily, but one, so God says, no, one person is not going to give that testimony. Two or more. To make sure that they're not giving false testimony, they have to throw the first stones to kill this person. As people get really, they don't have any value of life. That's not a real big deal. But you've got to remember, God has given them a reason for life and for love and for caring for people. And they're basically killing their own family members usually in this case. You know, somebody is at least closely related to them if you're bringing, them, bringing these charges to them because it's inside your gate. And in those days, you pretty much lived within wherever you were born. Very rarely did you travel any distance to, to move, out of, move out of your town. So this is what God has done. He's put in rules for, for witnesses and a rule to attempt to uh, keep perjury out of capital offenses. And this is something we don't have in our judicial system. If you... You know, you're, we're, the person who's testifying in a capital crime is not going to necessarily have to even participate in anything after that. So there's that disconnect, the disconnect that God put in there. Verse uh, 8. I'm trying to find, excuse me, I'm going to interrupt, but I'm trying to find the one where one witness says that the person's innocent, they'll be let go. It doesn't say that. It says you have to have two or three witnesses in verse 6. Verse 7, the hands of the witness shall, uh, but, uh, verse 8, 6, but at the mouth of one witness he shall not be put to death. In other words, one person cannot testify. Oh, it's saying one person can't testify. For and have him executed. It means be two or more. Because God, again, God has placed in capital punishment into his legal system very clearly. Okay, there's no question about that. That's why when you read the Ten Commandments and it has been mistranslated in the King James to be thou shalt not kill, when it should be thou shalt not murder. The Hebrew word is literally murder. And there's a big difference between murder and capital punishment, 
or you know any or even and even God made provisions that if you accidentally killed somebody you went to you could go and, and not be killed okay he understood that there was this manslaughter you know we call it manslaughter in our day where you don't have an intent to kill somebody it just happens and so God had provisions for that the penalties were not the same but if you were angry at somebody and you killed them then God said that is a capital offense and you and you deserve to pay with your own life. God believes in this. Now, he doesn't have individuals doing it in, in a uh, vigilante uh, uh, justice. They took the person to the front gate where a court was held. It was their court. It was at the front gate where the elders would sit. They'd listen to the evidence, and they would say, yes, the case has been proven. They will now die. Okay, God has never put it in our, as individuals, to do this. And this is why even in our day, we as individuals don't go out and, and, and seek revenge and, and vigilante judges justice. It has to go through the court system. And we won't go on how good or bad the court system is at this moment, but, uh, but it goes to the court system. And the government is the one that institutes the justice. Paul in, in the book of Romans said that the government has the power to wield the sword. And that sword was to both defend, your, defend yourself from foreign enemies and to execute for the, for the crimes that were against, against people. And God is very much for that, as long as it's the governmental agencies doing it. And so we, we bring that up. You know, God has rules for government. He has rules for people. And governments will answer. God will judge the nations, he tells us. So when we have very poor leaders, they will have to stand before God in judgment for what they did with the nation. But uh, so we don't, we want to keep that understood. The, they, the government does not get away with being bad, bad leaders. They will answer to God as well which is why we are to be subject to the government because God will hold them accountable. He will defend us and he will hold them accountable. And when Paul said to, to honor the leaders, you want to think about what leaders was he talking? You know, a lot of people go, well, he, he had good government. Yeah, he had Nero wanting to kill all the Christians. You know, Nero was out you know, burning, burning Christians uh, on, on poles to light his gardens. You know, he put pitch on them and burnt them. He put them in the in the arenas to be torn by animals and to be killed by gladiators. He wasn't a nice guy, and Paul was still saying he's to be honored because God put him in charge. And he will end, and he has answered at this point because he's long dead, but he, he would have to stand before God and explain what he did in, in handling his empire. So we look at these things, and God will hold people accountable. We don't have to worry about that. God will hold them accountable. Okay, verse 8. If there arise a matter too hard for you to judge in judgment between blood and blood, between plea and plea, between stroke and stroke, being matters of controversy within your gates, then you shall arise and get you up to the place which the Lord your God shall choose. And you shall come unto the priests, the Levites, and unto the judge that shall be in those days and inquire, and they shall show you the sentence of the judgment. And you shall do according to the sentence which they of that place which the Lord has chose to shall show you, 
and you shall observe to do according to all that they inform you, according to the sentence of the law that they shall teach you, according to the judgment which they shall tell you, you shall do, you shall not decline from the sentence which they shall show you, to the right or to the left. And the man that will do presumptuously and will not hearken unto the priest that stands to minister there before the Lord your God, or unto the judge, even that man shall die, and you shall put away the evil from Israel. And all the people shall hear and fear and do more, no more presumptuously. All right. He's continuing now to the next level of judgment. Okay. You have a case that, that the city can't determine. Okay. The city leaders can't con determine. God says you're to go to the temple and talk to the priest. The priests were the next level of, of judgment here. Uh, we in America have our civil courts, and then we have our state courts, and then we have our federal courts. We, we got our system from the scriptures idea of how to escalate the problem. If it's too big for one level, you take it to the next level, and, to the, to the, and then in our case, the Supreme Court, in this case, the Supreme Court happens to be the Levites at the temple. So they go, okay, your case is too big. You can't determine it. No, both sides aren't happy with the outcome. You took it to the temple and talked to the, the Levites. And this is what he says. And then God says in verse 10, you shall do according to the sentence, which the place which the Lord has chose to show you, and you shall observe to do according to all that they inform you. In other words, when the... The Levites, the high court, decided what they were going to, what the, what the answer was. You followed through. If they said the person was to be executed, you executed them. If they said they were to be let go, you let go. If they said, you know, you, you cheated them out of, out of 50 head of cattle, and that's our determination, give them back, then you went out and you finished that statement. You, you followed what they said. And again, this is how we built America's judicial system. When you get to the Supreme Court, there's no place else to go. The Supreme Court has made a decision, and that is the decision. Now, it does not necessarily make a law, but it is the decision, and you follow what their decision is. And until our government makes the mother laws to either countermand their decision or make it, make it valid. But it says, and if you don't do that sentence, and you will do it, and you won't deviate. Now, we talked in the past, God said to the people, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, okay? This was a very interesting statement. And again, we've talked about how for, for the people, it was a, quite a restriction on how far they could go. In our day, we look at it and say, boy, how vicious. You know, you, know, you lose an eye, you poke their eye out. You, you know, they knock your tooth out, you take their tooth out. You know, they break your arm, you break, you know, you break their arm. But in their day, that was quite restrictive because if you hurt me, then, then in the normal world's viewpoint, you would just write in with you know, all, the, all your family and friends and servants that you could, and you just destroyed their farm and took everything out with you. And God said, nope, you can't do that. You Israelites can't do that. You can give only just as much as you were hurt. And here we see the same thing. It says, and he says when he does that, do not turn your eye away from this and forgive somebody because because there has to be a consequence the same statement here once the judgment's made you follow through with the judgment now was an eye for an eye a tooth for a tooth always followed no they usually did not go that far well, i think at some point it changed it's, um, you send one of your people to the hospital you send one of the others to the morgue you know, 
Well, see, that's the way the world was before an eye for an eye. And then that's what God said. You know, you, and we, we see it still, you know, when the gangster, you know, gangster environment, there's always, it's the, ang and it's the human way. Escalation of the violence. You did this to me, so I'm going to do more to you so that you don't, but all that does is make the other person decide they want to do more back to you, you know, and so. I mean, it can have two effects on it. Yeah, so usually. Yeah. If they don't feel like they're strong enough to, to counter. But God's rule was you can only do a like violence in return. And so it was a deterrent. Now, not everybody would say, well, you broke my arm, so I'm going to go break your arm. You know, it, it's the, God told them they were supposed to, but not everybody would have done it. But it did, for those who were seeking revenge, it limited the revenge that they could take. And here, God's saying, when they make a decision, you are to follow through with that decision. And this includes if they decide that that person's worthy of death, then everything that went in this would be involved with it. But, and it says, and then in verse 12 says, very interesting, the man that will do presumptuously and will not hearken unto the priest that stands to minister before the Lord and do his judgment, even that man shall be put, uh, shall die and you shall put away evil from Israel. God is very much on this fact of he wants his people pure. He wants his church pure. This is why as much as we teach grace, and, I want, and I've said this over and over, I want anybody that's in town or even out of town, anybody to come into our church. I don't care if they're drinking, using drugs, committing adultery, fornication, homosexuality. I don't care. I want them in the church. Why? Because they can hear the word of God. And they need it because of these things. We all need it, but you know, they need it especially. But if somebody comes in here and they're trying to promote their sinful lifestyle and drag my people into their lifestyle, then we're going to have a problem in saying, no, you're not able to stay in this church. You're trying to get people to commit adultery you know, with you or fornicate, you know, fornicate with you or you know, do this or that or the other thing in the church. We're not going to, we're not going to allow that. But I want everybody here to be able to hear the word of God. Now, I understand that if, you, if they're coming in and they have a sinful lifestyle and we start preaching against sin, they're probably going to leave. They're either going to get convicted and get right or they're going to leave. And we've had several people that have visited during the four years that have a very sinful lifestyle and they, and they decided they didn't want to hear their sin being called out. And you know, not that I attacked them. But if you're committing a sin and we call it a sin, you're not going to feel comfortable sitting in the church. And even for us as Christians, when, we, when I preach on something that God's talking about and you're committing that sin, it doesn't feel good, even though I'm not naming names and calling people out or even using, you know, doing it on purpose. It's, you know, this is a fun thing about going verse by verse. You can go through and no matter what you touch, it was the next verse. So nobody can ever say you were preaching at them. They, they may feel like they've been preached at. They may feel like, and I've been there where I've felt like the preacher was talking to me, and I'm going, how, how did he know I was doing this or had this problem? But no, it's God speaking to you and, and convicting your heart. But God says, I'm going to purify the people because I want a pure people. When sin reigns in a church, a town, a country, uh, anything, it infects others around. But this is where it becomes so important. Sin 
infects righteousness. And this is why God says, don't be unequally yoked to people. And that means we usually teach it when we're talking about relationships and getting married. But it can also mean when you go into business, who do you hang around with most of, most of the time? And again, when I say that, I want to be very careful. I'm not saying isolate yourself completely from the lost world, because if you did that, you have nobody to witness to. But your best friend should not be a lost person. Sin will almost always drag us down more than we will drag the sinner up. It's just the way it works. Why? Because our own flesh wants to sin. And if I'm hanging around somebody who always wants to sin and not go to church or whatever else, I am going to tend to go their way more than they're going to come to the side of the righteous. And I've seen it over and over and over again. I wonder why it's strong. Because it's part of who we are. The sin nature drags us down. They're doing what we really want to do if we were honest with ourselves. We might hold out for a while and, be right, and, and play the righteous game and be righteous. But we have the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. That is what is inside us wanting to do wrong, unless it's crucified. That is what our flesh is. So if you're hanging out with a lost person who already has no desire to do good, they're perfectly happy doing bad, it is very easy for us to be drawn into their activities. But it is true that we will be drugged down. Bad company corrupts good morals is the, is the, moral, the moral statement, and that's what ends up happening. If you're hanging out with, and I'm not even talking bad, bad people. I'm just talking about people who don't want to go to church. How easy is it to be drugged away from church if you're hanging around with somebody who always wants to go out to the beach or camping or, or all kinds of activities that just almost have to be done on Saturday and Sunday because that's the weekend. And you say no, you say no, you say no, and then one day you say yes, and then before, and you miss one day, and it's not that big a deal. And I'm not saying it's wrong to ever miss church, you know, it's because I have missed church on occasions. But that one day often starts being one day a month, and that one day a month becomes two days a month, then it becomes three days a month, and then all of a sudden you haven't been in church for a year because you've just gotten so busy doing stuff. And I'm not saying you go out drinking yourself into numbness. You're just not being with God's people and you slip away from reading the Bible and you just start doing things. And I've seen it happen over and over and over again. So it starts innocent. It starts innocent. Sure, I'll go camping with you this weekend. No big deal. I, can miss, I haven't missed a day of, of church for four years. I can, I can miss one day. It's no big deal. And you go camping with them. A couple weeks later, it's like, hey, we're going to go to the beach. You, know, you want to go with us? It's going to be on Sunday morning. Oh, well, yeah, no big deal. I'll miss, you know, but it just it happens. And, it, and the problem with it is, is it usually happens so slowly that we don't realize what's happening to us. And then we get to a place where you wake up one morning, you haven't been to church, you haven't picked up your Bible, you haven't prayed, and it's been years. And you go, how did I get here? Small, incremental shifts the wrong way. And I'm not saying that it's bad. I'm not saying it's bad to go camping. Don't get me wrong. Camping can be fun. Camping can be a good thing. What do you do? If you go camping or go to the beach and you bring God into it, you sing some songs, you read the Bible, it's not necessarily wrong. But again, if you start doing it every month or twice a month or something, then you've got to start looking and saying, 
am I replacing God? Am I, am I, is something wrong here? Because we need God's people. We need each other. Hebrews tells us, forsake not the assembling of yourselves, and so much more as you see the day approaching. Why? Because we need one another. We need the teaching. We all need teaching. I need teaching, which is why I listen to so many teachers on, on the computer and on the radio. Because I need to be taught myself as I'm going along. Many pastors get, get drugged down because they isolate themselves and they never listen to another preacher. They never spend time fellowshipping with another preacher. And then they wonder why they get dry and, and maybe even want to leave the ministry. Most pastors leave the ministry in, in, in five to seven years because they just get dry and forget to, forget to study. They forget to fellowship. They forget, forget to get fed. It's very important. We need it. If you're called to be a pastor and you, get, and you do things that get yourself so dried out that you have to quit, then you needed to, you needed to do some things differently. Some people need to be taken out. But it is true that we need to look at this and who are we spending time with. And, that's, and, I, and even as I say that, I want us to be so careful. It, I'm not saying totally eliminate the lost world out of your life because then there's nobody to witness to. But who are you hanging out with? Are they, good? are they the influence that are going to draw you closer to God or pull you away? And in many cases, we get pulled away if we're not careful. And it is easy to get pulled away, and it happens slowly. It's not just like one day you're going to church you know, five days a week, and the next day you don't go to church again for, for years. And this is why when I see people start changing their attendance habits, they start missing one, one service. They start missing two services. I start really praying for them because I know that what ends up happening is it's a downward trend that usually gets worse. It, it, it is a red flag for me when I see that. That or the other side of the coin, they normally sat at the front of the church and now they're sitting at the back of the church. That's a red flag if they do that all the time. Now, it's one thing to sit at the back of the church because you have something to do right at the end of church and you need to get out the door. But if somebody always sits up front and all of a sudden they're always sitting in the back, a couple, a couple months later it's not going to surprise me that they're not in church at all. And there's some people that just like the back of the church. I'm not, but I'm saying you have that transition. They used to sit close to the front and they move backwards. There's that, okay, something is not right. And it's a signal to pray for them and say, God, let's help them. What can we do? But this is why it's important. How much are we seeking God? How, who are our friends? Who do we hang out with? Do they know that we love God and are they encouraging that love? A lot of times family can be de very detrimental to your, to your faith. You know, family can be real quick to draw you into family parties on, on times when the services are going. And, you know, you really need to come to this reunion. You know, Uncle Joe, who you haven't seen in three, 30 years, is going to be there. Well, if I haven't seen him in 30 years, I can meet him after church with no, no big deal either. But this is how these things work. The lost world can bring us and drag us down. When people get married and one's not saved, they might even go to church for a while, first get married. But you start watching them, all of a sudden they're missing. It usually starts out with the unsaved person missing. And then slowly the other person starts missing. Seen it in my own family, unfortunately. It, it happens. It's very easy to happen. 
And we need to be careful about this because God is saying, don't be presumptuous to be disobedient. And he says, I'm going to do this. Why? So that the people will hear and fear and do no more presumptuous evil. God's saying, I want my people pure. We know that we're not going to be pure, but we need to see God work in our life. And the way we do that is be, be around his people, be in his word, be around the messages, lift up God. There's people in the prison that probably think I'm absolutely nuts. Now, I have an advantage because I was a chaplain, so they kind of expect it from me, but they, they know it's me coming up because I'm humming or singing or, you know, not loud, but I'm singing and humming in there. And they go, they look and they go, I knew it was you. <laughs> I'm going, yep, it's a great day. It's raining. It's a great day. <laughs> it's a cold. It's a wonderful day. <laughs> How do we lift up people? How do we encourage people? How do we encourage ourselves? We need to be looking at the little things because what ends up happening, it's the little things that will choke out our Christianity. It's the little things that will choke out our joy in the Lord if we just let them. And our most important thing is that we look at it and say, God, you are the one who's in control and I want to honor you. I am, you know, I tell everybody, I am going to have a good day. It doesn't matter what happens. I am choosing to have a good day. Why? Because God's in control. Nothing's going to happen to me that he didn't know about, and I'm just going to have a good day. Because circumstances do not make me, are not going to affect whether I have a good day or not. Now, there are days when you're not quite as happy as you normally would be, but I'm still going to have a good day. God has got a reason for whatever happens. And it comes down to, do I truly believe that? And in my case, I really truly believe that God is in control and that he has a reason for everything that happens to me. I don't always understand it. And there's times when I've gone to God, God, I don't understand it, but you've promised that it's for good. So I'm going to know that you're in control and that you have a reason for this. You know, it'd be nice if you kind of tell me why, but I'm still going to trust that you are in control. And he doesn't usually tell me why. God, God has this habit of not telling us why. He does what he wants because he's in charge. Which is what I used to tell people when I was a manager. I don't have to tell you why I want you to do this. this you're, I need it done. You're going to do it. And God is, is no less a manager and no less in charge. He doesn't explain why he does things to us all the time. Sometimes he does, but not usually. So we're going to end here. And, uh, but we want to look that God is trying to keep us pure. He's trying to keep his people pure. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity we have to come before you. Lord, help us to always examine our own lives. Help us to see whether we're in the faith, walking in, in you, or being drawn away by others, or even by our own lusts. And that you will guide and keep us. But we, Lord, we ask that you keep in front of our minds the question, how are we doing spiritually today? And, and, and look at our lives honestly and turn them over to you. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.